This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back Hello, you're listening to the Red Box Politics Podcast. Patrick Maguire here in for Matt Jolly. We've got a great podcast for you today. We're talking about whether there's ever a good time to call an election. But first, it's time for our columnist panel. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. Yes, every week at this time, Matthew, Manveen Rana is joined by someone called Matthew. And today that someone is Matthew Syed. Morning, Manveen. Hello. Uh, morning, Matthew. Morning. Uh, good to have you both. Let's get stuck into it. Liz Truss has been uh, stateside. No period of silence from the former Prime Minister, but she's been speaking at the Heritage Foundation think tank in Washington and she has blamed, no surprises here, the anti-growth coalition for the brevity of her term in Downing Street. As Prime Minister, I simply underestimated the scale and depth of this resistance and the scale and depth to which it reached into the media and into the broader establishment. My plans for tax cuts and supply-side reform were about making Britain more competitive. They were about making us a more successful country, but we face coordinated resistance. So we didn't just face coordinated resistance from inside the Conservative Party or even inside the British corporate establishment. We faced it from the IMF and even from President Biden. Uh, Manveen, were you hanging on every word? And no, no, to be honest, I, I'm slightly surprised that she's she's doing big speeches already um, and that people are, are inviting her over to, to give them because um, I, I'm not sure who needs to hear um, Liz Truss's view of the world right now. But I mean, it, you know, listening to the clips, I do, it is fascinating. You sort of think it's an amazing degree of self-delusion um, and gall to be able to come out and, and still justify your entirely flawed economic theory uh, and, and and to be able to say you faced a conspiracy of not only part of the Conservative Party and the corporate world, but the IMF and the American president. I mean, that's for most people, I think that would make you question whether your ideas were perhaps at fault, but clearly not for Liz Truss. Well, Matthew, you've written extensively about the psychology of high performance um, and I probably not the best label to describe Liz Truss's premiership. But 
can you get inside her head? I mean, Manveen uses the word delusion there. That's a word I hear a lot from people, sort of incredulous people in Westminster. But can you, you know, having written extensively about this sort of thing, at least in the world of sport, can you identify what's going on there? Well, I I did in a book called Black Box Thinking look very closely at a, a very important psychological characteristic, particularly of Westerners, called cognitive dissonance which is where we find it very difficult to hold contradictory beliefs at the same time. And therefore, we try and reduce the tension in various quite interesting and creative ways. I think Liz Truss is subject at the moment to very profound amounts of cognitive dissonance, because on the one hand, she had an economic policy which showed faith in free markets in order to boost growth. Uh, and she bet her uh, premiership on that approach. It was brought down not by uh, Joe Biden or uh, the anti-growth coalition, but largely by financial markets. And financial markets, as it were, bring together the disparate views of millions of different people in prices, uh, as Hayek famously argued. And as I understand it, that is Liz Truss's intellectual guru. Mm. So she has this very difficult tension between a belief in free markets on the one hand and the idea that free markets brought down her central economic uh, policy. And so I, I think that what she's doing to to try and bring about alignment between these two views is, is to create a whole range of other scapegoats for what went wrong. But it must be very difficult to do because in the privacy of her own mind, she knows that it, it was a response of... Uh, the bond markets and other uh, markets that, that really did for her. Yeah, all revolutions devour their children, don't they? It must be quite a weird existence for Liz Truss, I think, because there's usually, you know, even a, a former prime minister, there's a certain dignity about having held that office. Uh, you know, even if you held it for a relatively short period of time by historical standards, like uh, Theresa May and, and Boris Johnson, three years apiece, but, you know, even Boris Johnson can carry himself on the world stage as a former prime minister who has some achievements to his name, ditto uh, Theresa May. But for, for Liz Truss, she now, having been prime minister for 44 days, Manveen, for the rest of her political career and indeed her life, she's a relatively young woman, she's not even 50, will be sort of haunting these sort of international think tank events, standing at the Cenotaph every year as people sort of try their best to forget those those 44 days. It's a very strange sort of political afterlife for her, isn't it? It's it's very odd. Um, and it's interesting that, you know, the one place that they did invite her to, to go and talk, the Heritage Foundation, you know, it, it's it's a, a libertarian think tank. It's very keen on on Margaret Thatcher as as Liz Truss is. So, you know, a lot of her speech sort of harked back to, to Margaret Thatcher. But um, I think the problem for her is, you know, there isn't the same the same degree of respect for for ideas i you know i i don't really know for her it's very hard to sort of sell a sense of legacy apart from just the economic catastrophe that everybody remembers so you know, i mean i mean i i think most people to be honest would probably want to curl up and hide mm-hmm. um so the fact that she's sort of still out there in some ways is kind kind of admirable but again possibly just the result of insane levels of delusion is her lack of sort of obvious repentance matthew given that People quite literally paid the price for the mistakes she and Kwasi Kwarteng made in office. You know, that's bad for trust in politics that she is 
sort of being fated, at least in some libertarian circles, as a, a great economic seer and is prepared to embrace that label rather than say, look, I, I made a mistake, I got it wrong and I'm profoundly sorry for the massive mortgage premiums a generation of people are now facing. Do you think that's bad for trust in politics? I think it's um, it's a common pattern. Uh, trust has a very short tenure, as you say. So she's remembered for the one very big thing she did that was wrong. There's very little positive on the balance sheet. But if you look at all previous prime ministers, uh, they also demonstrate very high levels of cognitive dissonance. Tony Blair uh, will go to his grave defending the legitimacy of the of the Iraq war. He continues to say he can't. He apologizes for some of the mistakes and in intelligence but will not apologise for going to war because he thinks it made the world a better place. That is not a view shared by almost anybody else. But because he was the person who did it, it's too psychologically threatening to admit that he made the world a worse place and many innocent people lost their lives. It would make a mockery of his entire life's purpose. In the same way, I'm confident that Boris Johnson, who was the main reason we voted Brexit, regardless of what evidence emerges over the next 10 or 20 years, will ever admit that it was a mistake to leave the European Union. It's almost impossible to objectively assess new information when one's reputation is bound up with an unchangeable decision that one made at a particular point in one's life. And Truss is just particularly unusual in that she has almost nothing as Prime Minister on the positive side of the balance sheet. Tony Blair would much rather talk, of course, about some of the good things he did in office and uh, Boris Johnson the same. He likes to talk about the vaccine rollout. He will always talk about that. But when they are pinned down on that one issue they got wrong, they will defend to their dying day. And I think people just can see the lack of objectivity in, in certain areas of this kind. We do it in our own lives, the very big decisions that we can't change. We typically try and self-justify rather than admit our mistakes. Mm. Lack of objectivity, delusion. I think that's the uh, there's a degree of consensus here on uh, Liz Truss's latest intervention from Manvi Rana and Matthew Syed. And let's stick with politics. Baroness Forsey, uh, Saida Wasi, former chair of the Conservative Party, has described Suella Bradman, the Home Secretary's rhetoric uh, on small boats and grooming gangs, as racist. Here she is uh, speaking to LBC. I am calling her rhetoric racist. I am. And I'm supporting the letters which call her rhetoric racist. And I think it's, and I, and I say that, as somebody who was subjected to racism mm. growing up, you know, in the 70s and 80s, this is not a term that I use loosely. And it's certainly not a term that I use easily when I talk about another woman of colour, another parliamentarian of colour. Uh, Braverman had said on uh, Sky over the weekend that the Home Secretary, uh, uh, the Home Secretary rather, said that grooming gangs had a predominance of British Pakistani males who hold cultural values totally at odds with British values. Uh, this week, she's also waded into a row uh, over Essex police seizing a collection of gollywog dolls from a pub in Greys. Uh, and polling from YouGov shows that although more people believe gollywogs are racist than six years ago, more people believe it's acceptable to display them uh, than uh, not. Uh, Manveen, it's always. Um, it's a very fraught argument and, and nobody ever really wants to, uh, to to sort of go there. What do you make of Saida Wasi's uh, comments? I mean, I think it's uh, I think it's interesting that she's come out and said it. I think a lot of people have watched Suella Bravman's performance over the last few months, really. Well, I mean, ever since she's really been in the public eye. And she does make race an issue. You know, she, she said as she came into, into office that her greatest ambition was to you know turn back the small boats she's made you know migration and there is always when she talks of it there's always sort of a racial undertone she doesn't do it in you know just as 
as an issue of the number of people coming in and and you know it, it, there's always that sort of sense of here are um it, it, language is inappropriate this sort of sense of invasion um and then you know the, i think the grooming gangs really was a bit of a surprise because anybody who thought you know looking at the 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 huge array of problems this country is currently facing to suddenly focus in all your efforts on grooming gangs, you know, A felt a little bit like it was about six or seven years too late. Um, you know, I don't think we've heard of more grooming gangs involving Pakistani men since the revelations in Rotherham and, Roch- you know, Rochdale, which were appalling. But, you know, to make that the great aim and to to say that they're predominantly grooming gangs consisting of Pakistani men just sort of defies the evidence, to be honest. You know, if you actually read... Uh, Alexis Jay did a very good report around all of this at the time. She did another one last year. You know, there were a range of um, policy suggestions that they put forward, none of which are being taken up, even if they are making grooming a, a great concern now, apart from uh, a one tiny bit of one of, of, of the number of policy suggestions, which was looking at, at race and whether sort of the reporting of it had, had been influenced. To make that the the core of of your new sort of policy direction feels mis you know it does feel like you're you're making a point and then to say that they're predominantly Pakistani gangs you know a is is uh, uh, you know dog whistle politics basically so I can understand why you'd think it was racist but also it, it you know it's in, in grave danger of of hiding the bigger problem grooming is an enormous problem in this country you know sexual abuse of of uh, young people is an, is an enormous problem I think about sort of half a million children every year we think are, are being groomed and abused and to focus all of your attention on Pakistani grooming gangs is missing about 99% of the problem um, and so I, I you know I, I, I think it's very hard to explain and very hard to justify so I can understand why you would look at that and think um, what else is going on here? Uh, what do you think well, Matthew? Well I think um, uh, politicians should be led by the evidence and the data uh, data is very granular. Terms like race are very non-granular, um, if that makes sense. They're very mm. broad categories. And so inferring the predisposition of a very large group of people from a subsection of them, I think, is always very dangerous. So it's about the way we use language to convey problems of this kind. So, for example, it may well be that there are significant, and I think there are problems in certain Pakistani communities um, which are very sequestered from wider society, uh, built around patriarchs and clans. And this is a problem more generally in terms of integration and may well be a factor in certain types of grooming patterns. And we should be able to say that loud and clear in order to address and combat the problem. We should also be able to say that that does not mean that all I'm half Pakistani, have many close male Pakistani friends. That doesn't mean that all Pakistani males are involved in grooming gangs. Some Pakistanis doesn't mean all. In the same way that there's a cultural problem has been historically in the Roman Catholic Church when mm. it comes to grooming, that doesn't mean that all Catholics uh, ha- or all white people, uh, Roman Catholic Church, predominantly white institution, are, are grooming. So one, one needs to be able to confront. One of the things that she's right to bring up is that cultural sensitivities on, on issues of racism has made it difficult to address these issues. That, I think, makes racism worse, not better. Um, so for me, it's a, just a difficulty of translating granular data into language. 
in a way that doesn't tarnish wide groups of people. But at the same time, we do need to tackle these cultural issues. And when you add in uh, a looming general election campaign, it's a recipe for, uh, for um, you know, pretty, uh, pretty strident rhetoric, I think. Now, a modest proposal uh, from Kirsty Alsop, the TV presenter best known for Channel 4's location, location, location. She suggests that older people should be paid to downsize as the current rate of stamp duty is discouraging them from moving to smaller homes. Someone selling their home for £700,000 and buying another one for five hundred grand would at present have to pay £12,500 in stamp duty. They've been recalled at calls to reform the system so that larger houses can be freed up for younger families who need the space. A good idea, Manvi? Yeah, I mean, she certainly knows the market, I guess. Um, I mean, I think stamp duty is obviously, uh, you know, it's, it's a huge problem for anybody who's trying to sell. I think we are about to have a real squeeze on the supply of homes. You know, people are, are very worried about where the market is going. They're worried that prices um are, you know, aren't at their best at the moment and will probably get a bit worse. So a lot of people are holding off the decision to sell. Um, I'm not sure, you know, I, I don't have enough evidence, to be honest, that a lot of this for older uh, older people is, is down to stamp duty alone. But, um, I mean, it's certainly a factor. I, I think it's an interesting idea. Um, what do you think, Matthew? Um, I hate stamp duty. I think we should... Uh, <laughs> get, get. When, I, when I bought my first flat... Uh, in 19, I mean, long time ago, 1996 uh, in Richmond, where I still live, lovely. Mm. I don't still live in the same flat, but I still live in the same area. Um, stamp duty for all property was 0.5 of one, yeah, half of 1%. Uh, and this, I think, was a great boost to economic efficiency because it meant you could move uh, without this massive friction of, of stamp duty. So I, I, I think we should effectively get rid of it or at least reduce it to a relatively small amount. I think it would pay for itself an additional economic growth and uh, economic efficiency and uh, allocative efficiency. So I, I I think the idea of just getting rid of it for people who own expensive houses, who are downsizing. I mean, the person who downsized, what did you say, Patrick? Was it 700, uh, 7 million? Sorry, tell me. The- 700,000. <laughs> someone selling their home for 700,000 and buying another one for 500,000 would at present have to pay 12,500 in stamp duty. Right, so that would be a lot more if you're downsizing from five to three million mm. or something. Yeah, no, but these but that person's made a, a very significant profit, presumably. If it's an elderly person, they probably bought that house for, you know, for fifty thousand, and now they're being relieved yeah. of taxation, uh, despite selling it at an absolutely enormous profit. But it's not that 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 particular gain is not being given to first time buyer. I think that's a, a completely absurd policy. The Richmond housing market must have changed quite considerably in the 30 years you've lived there matthew yeah i can't believe it's well 30 yeah don't overdo it i mean 96 that's, oh, sorry that's, that's sorry 27 sorry. years <laughs> don't age me um has it changed well has it changed i i thought it would change more the thing that strikes me is one of the big factors is off-street parking and you know i kind of envisage a future where I thought there would be kind of loads of i mean i suppose self-driving cars where you can order and jump into a car uh, that you don't necessarily own. I, 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 I think that the housing market hasn't changed as fast as it. The, the same sort of issues are there today as they were 27 years ago. Yeah, it is the sort of Gordian knot that sits at the heart of our politics, Manveen, isn't it? That needs to someone needs to untie it at some point. Yeah, I mean, I think 
And it's really interesting because if you look at sort of voting intentions, it is increasingly getting towards the sort of the top of people's concerns because so many young people can't even hope to be to be household um, house owners at some point in a way that just wasn't the, 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 the case in previous generations. And I, I don't I don't know how you get around that right now. I mean, you know, the difficulty as a lot of older people will tell you is that they won't sell their big houses because they're still housing their adult children. Um, and I think that's that's a real concern. So, you know, you, you, I don't know how you sort of you, you change the market completely so that younger people can afford to get onto the, the housing market, uh, get onto the ladder uh, and free up their, their parents. That was Matthew Said and Manveen Rana. Remember, you can read Matthew in the Times of Sunday Times every week and you can listen to Manveen on our sister podcast, Stories of Our Times. Just get yourself a subscription or download the Times Radio app. Coming up next, when to call an election or not. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Rishi Sunak is reportedly scheduling the next general election for the autumn of next year. He hopes that waiting another year and a half will give him enough time to improve the economy and with it the Tories' poll ratings. Meanwhile, Sir Keir Starmer can't wait for another public vote. Here he is speaking following a recent by-election victory for Labour. Every time the public get the chance to vote, they send the same message, which is they want change, they want Labour, they want the Tories out. We're ready for a general election. We want to turn these by-elections into a general election. But is it that easy? History teaches us that trying to time a general election to boost your party's chances of winning is not quite as easy as it sounds. And, of course, it can go spectacularly wrong. So when is the best time for a government to do it? To answer that question, I'm joined by the historian and journalist Phil Tinline, author of the Times Political Book of the Year, The Death of Consensus. Morning, Phil. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Times Radio's Aisha Hazarika, the former Labour advisor, also joins us. Hi, Aisha. Morning. And the former Tory advisor, Giles Kenningham, is with us too. Hello, Giles. Morning. Now, Phil, let's get straight into this one because there's a range of possibilities for Rishi Sunak or indeed any other Prime Minister who is coming to the end or contemplating the end of their their parliament. So five years maximum for any parliament before parliament has to be dissolved. Last election, of course, from December 2019. But it's... 
doesn't follow that every prime minister goes the full five. No, absolutely not. Very often people go after round about four and this often happens in periods when you know funnily enough they think they're going to win when things are relatively stable one party is quite dominant so in the 1950s in 1955 1959 the Tories run after four years each time and win both times very handling in fact improve as they go along in the 1980s you get the same thing in 1983 and 87 and then with new labor in uh, 2001 and 2005 the one interesting thing about all of those though is that in 1955 one of the first of them Anthony Eden has been Prime Minister for a matter of weeks and runs straight away in a snap election and wins very handily, which is a precedent that not everybody has managed to live up to since. Mm. Indeed, most Prime Ministers who've come in midterm have avoided it, which we'll talk about a little later. Uh, Aisha, I want to bring you in here. Despite what we just heard from Phil about four years being the historical norm, we are four years on from 2019, or coming up with three and a half years on, but there's no real appetite to call an election this year. And I think if you ask the Labour Party, yeah, they'd look at the polls and say, great, but I'm, I'm not sure everybody in Keir Starmer's team feels really ready for it. Why, why do you think there's no realistic prospect of an election this year? I mean, quite simply because of the polls. If you're Rishi Sunak, <laughs> you're looking at the polls and you're like, no way, mate. And you, what you do want, you want to buy yourself enough time to try and see if you can secure some some positive news, particularly on the economy, if things do stabilise, you know, if we are going to try and get some of, of that growth that um, the, the, the OBR predicts and, of course, if inflation comes down. So I think if you're Rishi Sunak, you're going to want to play it as long as possible. I mean, I think for the Labour Party, it's it's interesting because they're in that they're in quite a luxurious position at the moment where they know that it's highly unlikely that a snap election will be called. And I don't think anyone in Rishi Sunak's team will be as daft as people were around Gordon Brown's time. I remember very well and have the scars on my back where lots of briefings started to leak that Gordon was thinking about that election. And of course, he, he never went for it in the end. I think they feel quite confident that the earliest point that Sunak would go would be May 2024. They're in quite a good position the Labour Party. They've got quite a lot of money in the war chest now, much more than they've had for a long time. And most importantly, they have selected like the rump of their candidates. They're mm. now going to be waiting for those late selections. But I actually think they're in reasonably good shape. They're going to use the local elections as a sort of testing ground, but they kind of know that the earliest point is it is probably going to be May next year. Do you agree, Giles? Yeah, no, totally. I think um Rishi's going to play the long game. He wants the economy to recover. The Tories will probably fight the election on the economy. Who do you trust to run it? Because that is still Labour's Achilles heel. I don't think they've sealed the deal with the public in terms of being trusted um, on that again. I suppose the question for Sunak will be how long do they want the election campaign to be? And I suspect they probably will back themselves against Starmer, someone who's not particularly light on his feet. He's not good when he comes under heavy fire. Um, and Sunak will be wanting to expose that. Uh, I suspect, but we'll see. I mean, like, you know, you saw it with May. I think if when she called that snap election, if it had been, I think they had six weeks, if it had been four weeks, she may have got a majority, but it started to unravel halfway through because she was someone who wasn't, um, you know, sort of, I suppose, matched fit for an election, wasn't good under pressure. So that would be the other question they'll be they'll be looking at. But the Tories, unlike Labour, I think, have been struggling a bit to get cash through the door. So they'll want a longer time to kind of build up a war chest. And it's not, it's not always a given, Phil, that the four-year rule, it's pretty clear from the state of the polls, 
that Rishi Sunak would probably lose if he went to the country now. Um, but there are examples from history of prime ministers who think after four years, well, this is an ideal time to go to the country and find that the country disagrees with them, most notably in 1970, where Harold Wilson uh, ran after four years and lost. The Conservatives have now gained enough seats to make it extremely likely that they will have an, abs- uh, an overall absolute majority in the House of Commons, certainly. To all intents and purposes, you've now given up any hope? Of- well, I think the figures speak for themselves. What can we learn from this one, Phil? Well, this is a really interesting and unusual election, <clears throat> Excuse me, um, because it's, it's the one time where you have a government with a really commanding majority, 1966, Wilson, Romsho, majority of 98, which is overturned, not ending up with a kind of very, very tiny majority, but with a majority of 30. It's the, it's the only really sort of strong reversal that you get. And paradoxically, it's the, therefore a Conservative victory, which, you know, you might see as a hopeful precedent for Starmer, who obviously is, is you know, against a majority of 80, which two years ago people were saying was absolutely insurmountable. But actually there are one or two precedents like that that it make it seem possible. Now, let's take a look at some of the examples in which an election has been curled or earlier than four years. We're going to give them a new deal. A new deal for Britain. I promise you that the next Labour government will do every single thing a government can do to keep the cost of living down. I have just chaired a meeting of the Cabinet where we agreed that the government should call a general election to be held on the 8th of June. Well, we heard there from Edward Heath, uh, Dennis Healy and Theresa May. But let's concentrate on Edward Heath for the time being, Phil. We can look to lessons uh, from 1974 about the merits of calling an election early. It went pretty badly for Edward Heath in the February of that year, but it worked out well for Harold Wilson just uh, eight months later. That's right. I mean, in February 1974, you have, uh, well, in January 1974, you have a lot of people who we now think of as, as quote-unquote wets, like Jim Pryor, who are actually in quite a hard-line frame of mind. Douglas Hurd, actually, similarly, who, because of the building confrontation between the Conservative government and the National Union of Mine Workers, want to call an election uh, by the 17th of January for the 7th of February. And Heath can't quite bring himself to do that. He still thinks he can find a deal. He's one of those politicians, a little like Theresa May in 2017, you heard, who point in two directions an awful lot of the time. He can't quite commit either to the fight or to finding a deal. And so he leaves it. He calls an election on the 7th of February and it's then held on the 28th. Incredibly short campaign, Mm. contrast to what Giles was saying, three-week campaign. But even so, that's enough for it to fall apart for him. There's bad inflation figures, there's bad balance of payment figures. It seems like there could have been a deal on the strike. There's been a mistake with the figures. Enoch Powell comes in and says, vote Labour because they're going to call a referendum on the common market. The whole point of holding that early election disappears. And I think that's part of the lesson here is that if you're going to call an election early, I mean, clearly Starmer, as Sunak is unlikely to do that, but if you're going to do it early, you have to do it decisively and for an obvious reason. And Heath failed on that basis. Whereas, by contrast, as you say, in October 1974, it was obvious why Wilson was calling the election. He didn't have a majority. People had thought he might even call it earlier than that. Uh, He played it very sort of steady as she goes. It played to his strengths. And of course, having won the previous election, he had that momentum or almost won it. Uh, And Giles, in 2017, Theresa May lacks the key ingredient that Phil speaks about there, which is a or at least a a clear reason she can say to the country, a clear and convincing reason she can give to the country for why she's calling the election. Obviously, she inherited a small majority from David Cameron. um, And she initially says, I'm not going to call an election. And then 
by the spring of 2017, uh, April 2017, six years ago, uh, around this time, she instead says, well, give me a majority to push through Brexit. And, and people don't find that terribly convincing, do they? Yeah, I think with Theresa May, I think the idea was why it was just the execution was poor. There are a few things, you know, they kept the decision so tight around them, they hadn't told anyone else. So they were, they launched an election campaign whilst trying to build the infrastructure for an election campaign at the same time, which led to a complete car crash. Um, they, you know, she hadn't, she wasn't kind of, I suppose, in the groove uh, or, or, or match fit to do it. But I do think that um, had it been a different person or had it been a short campaign or had they prepared, then they would have won. Because this kind of prevailing narrative that Cortman did really well. I mean, Cortman didn't win a majority right off the back of it. He did better. He defied expectations. But that's but that's not the matter. I think the reason for going saying, look, I need a personal mandate, the, the numbers were still quite tight on Brexit, could have got her over the line in a way that, you know, really Boris Johnson won the majority that she should have won. Um, in 2019. And that's a risk, isn't it, Aisha, when you call an election on one pretext, Theresa May's, you know, allowed me to, as the Daily Mail put it, crush the saboteurs and, and get through Brexit, is that the public, especially if you face an energetic campaign from the opposition, as Jeremy Corbyn's campaign was in 2017, they might not necessarily agree. Yeah, I mean, when you when you look back and, and you sort of think, look, look at who's taken a gamble on doing an election. Gordon Brown was going to and bottled it and he probably should have done. Theresa May gambled and basically shouldn't have done. I mean, interesting, I was just looking at the turnout. I mean, the turnout of the 2017 general election campaign is the highest that we've had for quite some time since 2010. So there was obviously, I think the public, there was some truth um, in the fact that I think the public were very frustrated by the impasse in Parliament that Brexit had brought. Um, now, there'll be some people on the left saying that the turnout was also exciting because they liked Jeremy Corbyn as well, who actually did much better, to be fair to him. He did much better in that campaign than he obviously did in in 2019. But it's interesting as well, when you look at Boris Johnson calling what was, a, again, you know, a kind of surprise election in 2019, um, it was interesting watching the Labour Party immediately sort of jump to saying yes, Jeremy Corbyn, because, I mean, lots of people were thinking this is going to end really, really badly for, for the Labour Party. I mean, the opposition have to be careful about constantly wanting to call for an election, as Jeremy Corbyn proved, be careful for, for, for what you wish, because the unique timing of that election in 2019, the combination of the people being very annoyed with with uh, Brexit, you know, the, the undeniable charisma that Boris Johnson had. I mean, I'm not a fan of the guy, but he was a very good, you know, campaigner. He clearly had some kind of stardust about him and the kind of uselessness of, of Jeremy Corbyn. That was like a kind of golden sort of um, collision of, 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 of opportunity for, for Boris Johnson. Of course, the Labour Party were happy to go along with that at that point. So you've got to be careful on both sides, not just as the government, but also uh, for the opposition about, you know, when's the right time. So, yeah, many potential pitfalls in calling an early election. But what about going long? Let's take a look at some of the examples of when an election has been called later than four years. When the demonstrators are pushed to one side and the ordinary people of Britain speak, I have no doubt that the Conservative Party and the Conservative government will have five more years of work in office. It will come as no surprise to all of you, and it's probably the least well-kept secret of recent years, but the Queen has kindly agreed to the dissolution of Parliament and a general election will take place on May the 6th. 
So we heard from John Major there in 1992, going five years after Mrs Thatcher's victory in 1987, and Gordon Brown going in 2010, five years after Tony Blair's victory in 2005. Phil, if this week's reports are true, and when Steve Swinford reports something, it's usually a good idea uh, to believe it. Uh, Sunak is calling his election almost five years after Boris Johnson won in 2019, winter 2019 to autumn 2024. But history teaches us that sort of gap often means that the government is heading for a defeat. Yes, it's often, it often happens when you're coming at the end of a long period in government, which is where we have now. I mean, 1992 is, in the opposite way to 1970, is an outlier, but it's one that sits in the heads of a, lot, of a lot of political journalists, I think, because people were young when it happened. It's within living memory, but it's very unusual. And I remember at the time how surprising it was, regardless of your politics, that a fourth majority was won, albeit only mm-hmm. a very small one, much more usually in 1964, in, 19, uh, in 2010, and in a different way in 1979. Labour had been in power for less time, but it still feels like the end of something. If you, if you go past that sort of zen moment after four and a bit years, it does feel like you're coming to the end of something. And Callaghan famously was about to call it, uh, or was thought to be about to call it at the TUC in September 1978, and then sang a strange song instead and left it and you ended up famously with the winter of discontent and that of course is the huge risk of leaving it to the last minute is events dear boy events what might have been what might have been for james callahan indeed what might have been aisha we've touched on this several times already because i think it occupies such a understandably it haunts a generation of of labor people gordon brown's failure when he comes in after tony blair in 2007 not to uh, the following year in 2008 when his numbers his personal numbers his polling numbers are uh, pretty respectable, not to go to the country and secure a majority of his own. What happened there? Oh, God, it was, so, it was such a, a stressful time. I remember I had just started as a special ad- advisor and suddenly um, everything just looked like it was out of control and we were kind of being told to, you know, collect as much information from the department as possible. And I'd only been a special advisor for about three weeks. I was thinking, what is going on here? And I remember going to that party conference. I think it was at Bournemouth. Mm. And it was just it was just terrible because the problem was there was sort of a couple of people in obviously the inner inner sanctum who had been wargaming this, but then they kind of rather idiotically started briefing people. And of course, as you will know yourself being very well connected, as soon as that kind of thing gets in the bloodstream, it's really difficult to contain it. So, you know, you had sort of some of the shadow cabinet not really knowing what was going on. They were waking up to these briefings saying that Gordon Brown and, and his team were looking at the numbers. They were thinking about it. This sort of manic um, momentum started where um, all the special advisors started to get briefed, to get prepared uh, for, for a general election. We were literally sort of packing up our, our offices in, in, in our departments. And then the whole thing got got called off, got called off because... Um, Gordon's team got cold feet. And I think, you know, everybody thinks the whole way that was managed was bad. It was really stupid to get that out to the bloodstream. But then once it was out, to have marched everybody to up to the top of the hill and then to have kind of bottled it was really bad. And I think if Gordon had decided to go then, I think history would have been very different. I think he had a really big shot at winning that general election and having a proper mandate of his own. I think it's very difficult for prime minister's to come in and establish themselves well when they just inherit their mm. party. I think, you know, and, and I think if Gordon had gone then, he'd had a good run because there'd been a terrorist attack that people thought he'd reacted very 
you know, commandingly to, there was all kind of, I think it was like foot and mouth disease that was happening. I think people thought he'd had quite a few crises at the beginning and he'd handled them pretty well and his numbers were high and he should have had the confidence to go. But there you go, shoulda, coulda, woulda. I, I remember at the time we were convinced, I'm sure if Brown had gone, that he would have won. And we had to kind of just show the bravado and egg him on. But I'm sure Aisha's right. Um, he would have won. Yeah, and also... Labour in a much more powerful position. Cameron was still establishing himself with the public then. Um, and I think he would have got a majority, perhaps not as big as a majority as they had, but he would have won. And then, you know, like I say, history would have been very different. And, you know, not going in the autumn of 2008 or not confirming gives George Osborne the opportunity to make that very eye-catching pledge uh, on inheritance tax uh, at the Tory conference, which sort of Labour's sort of have dithered until then. They don't use the conference as a, a launch pad. Uh, for uh, for their election campaign, as Aisha was saying, indeed, you know, Gordon Brown drops heavy hints in a uh, in a cosy chat with Times Radio's own Mariella Frostrup uh, at Bournemouth, but you know, nothing happens, and then George Osborne seizes the initiative, and all of a sudden, the uh, the uh, political positions are transformed, aren't they, Charles? Yeah, absolutely, and I think the other bit of history there is that um, uh, that that announcement was accidentally emailed before conference to Mike Hancock, Lib Dem MP, oh, yes. who, just didn't, who just didn't happen to open his email. Um, in fact, it was actually emailed, I think, accidentally as meant for Matt Hancock. And of course, if he'd opened it, he could have obviously jumped the gun and, you know, done the announcement himself and completely ruined what was, as you say, a signature announcement and one that did move the polls, one that really did resonate. And like you say, um, cast that doubt in Brown's mind about whether to go or not. Yes, uh, Mike Hancock had a, uh, you know, many extracurricular activities, shall we speak, yes. that were occupying him instead of his <laughs> instead of his inbox at the time. <laughs> listeners may remember. <laughs> yeah, indeed, uh, Phil. There are exceptions to this rule, of course. John Major in '92 goes after five years, goes long. You know, the Tories' polling position isn't great. People expect that Labour are finally going to overturn 13 years of Tory rule, yet he manages to turn it around. He does. He probably helped by the fact that he had come in as Prime Minister in November 1990 after uh, the fall of Thatcher. And so he was a relatively fresh face. I think if Thatcher had run uh, through to that 92 election, many, most people think that she would have lost for fairly obvious reasons. There'd also been the Gulf War. I think it was a little bit of a bounce from that. But yeah, it is it is important to remember how unusual that is, though, I think. I mean, it does. And, and you know, that had been a long period of, compared to the last 13 years, you know, relatively stable government. That You know, look at the size of the majority that they'd had in 1983, 1987, they're both well over 100, or the first one well over 100. You know, uh, there had been, you know, not the anything like the sense of ruction and chaos, nothing like Brexit uh, in that period of government. So it had come at the end of a relatively stable period of, of, you know, political command, really, which we just haven't seen in the last decade. Jeremy Hunt, who's in the United States and IMF meeting, was asked directly by Bloomberg earlier whether he wanted to see an early or a late election. Here's what he said. Well, it's too soon to answer that question. You don't want to put a season on it. Maybe um, it's the autumn unit. You don't... What I would say is that if you look at the projections, not just by the IMF, but by the official forecasters in the UK, uh, by the Bank of England, they are that in a year's time, the UK economy will really have turned a corner. And the single reason for that is that we are predicted to get inflation down to 3% or below. Phil, learning the lessons from history and looking at the economic trends Jeremy Hunt alluded to there, it makes sense for Rishi Sunak to pitch for the autumn of 
2024. That's probably the latest he can go. Nobody wants to campaign over Christmas, given that he can technically go as late as January 2025, but that wouldn't be practical. It probably makes sense to go long, doesn't it? You can certainly see the case for it. I mean, manifestly better to go when the economy feels like it's in recovery uh, greater to a greater extent than now. However, of course, in 1997... Uh, the economy is actually doing really rather well. Uh, but nonetheless, you have that long sort of uh, tectonic plate shift going on that, you know, in the wake of um, Black Wednesday in 1992 and just the sense of the government that had been in power for 18 years, that there was a sense that even though actually Ken Clark had got the economy in good shape, it was nonetheless time for a change. So it's by no means closes down the possibility that Labour's poll lead, as it currently is, will carry through to something like that. Although I do think that one thing we haven't talked about, which I think is worth bearing in mind, is that, you know, Starmer, if he wins, may win with a very small majority, at which point some of the things we've been talking about become very relevant. The idea of 1964, where Harold Wilson overturns a majority of 100 and gets a majority of three, but then runs 18 months later and gets mm. a majority of almost 100 for himself. That sort of precedent doesn't seem to me to be completely out of the picture. What do you think, Charles? Um, I, I actually think that there is a very narrow route to victory for the Tories at the next election. Um, if it is on the economy, I can see a 1992 situation where the Tories um, sort of scrape home. I think the, if that does happen, obviously you've got a situation where they probably become even more ungovernable than they are at the moment. But I, I don't buy this narrative that it is all baked in for Starmer, that he's definitely going to win midterm polls are meaningless in their top. And in seemingly at the moment, you've seen them narrow. And I don't think Starmer's been tested. I don't think he's particularly good under pressure. So I think it is still all to play for. Do you agree with that, Aisha? Still all to play for. Labour people don't want to be complacent. They're all haunted by the memories of 1992 and and 2015 in particular. Um, There's still a lot of time for things theoretically to go wrong if Rishi Sunak does wait until next autumn. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you just have to look at uh, history to know that, um, you know, Labour is sort of stars very rarely align uh, for Labour on general elections. Now, look, there are some things which have really, really helped Starmer. The collapse of the SNP in Scotland, the departure of Nicola Sturgeon is a complete gift to the Labour Party in Scotland. That offers them the chance to pick up around 15 to 20 seats, which is quite a tipping point for for, for the Labour Party. It looks like things have been rebuilt in uh, the Red Wall. But I think, you know, when you stop and think about the numbers and the sheer scale of what Keir Starmer has to do, even if he gets the same swing that Tony Blair did in 1997 at the absolute height of his powers, he only gets a working majority of just one. I mean, that is a massive, massive challenge. And as you say, in that time, there's plenty of things to to go wrong. Labour has really not set out, understandably, for very good reason, Labour hasn't set out much of its tax and spend plans. As soon as it does that, it knows it will be vulnerable to to a lot of um, attack. That blue wall is going to be interesting as well because Labour really does need people who have been sort of Conservative voters to switch to Labour, particularly in those um, seats, not just the, the, the red wall. And I think the jury is still out on, on Keir Starmer. So I think that the party has come a, a long way when you think about where things were sort of three years ago when Starmer became leader. But I mean, complacency would would really kill the the Labour Party. And I don't think he and his team, to be fair to them, are being complacent about this. So there you have it. I hope Rishi Sunak was listening. You heard there from Phil Tinline, historian and author of the Times Book of the Year, The Death of Consensus, Times Radio's Aisha Hazarika, a former Labour advisor, and Giles Cunningham, former press secretary to David Cameron. 
now it's time for our daily counterfactual. What if? Today we're asking, what if Tony Benn had beaten Dennis Healy to the Labour deputy leadership in 1981? I'm joined by John Landsman, who ran Tony Benn's campaign. Afternoon, John. Hello. And David Cogan, who wrote the book on it at the time with his uncle Morris, The Battle for the Labour Party, and has since written another excellent history of the Labour Party protest and power. Hello, David. Hi, Patrick. Let's start with you. For those who don't know, for those who've forgotten or those who weren't around at the time, remind us who Tony Benn and Dennis Healy were, who they represented in the in the Labour Party of the time, and what made the battle such a high-stakes one. Tony, Tony Benn was the most charismatic and effective leader of the left really, that the Labour Party has seen, and I include Jeremy Corbyn in that description. He'd been a cabinet minister, he was uh, in the previous Labour government, um, and was known to be both an effective administrator in the 60s and 70s, but he'd moved radically to the left. Dennis Healy was exactly the opposite. He'd been Minister of Defence then, he'd been Chancellor of the Exchequer for five years, and had carried out a reformation of the economic policies of the Labour government. And they really represented the left and the right of the party, And the context of the 1981 conference from the clip you showed was that eight months earlier at Wembley in January uh, 1981, the left won their seismic victory of changing the way the leader and deputy leader of the Labour Party would be elected by creating an electoral college. Um, And this was immediately followed the following day by the creation of a walkout from the Labour Party called the Social Democratic Party. So throughout 1981, the left was empowered by the fact they'd won this huge victory, which indeed lasted for 40 years. I mean, the Electoral College has not never really went away. But the right were more and more worried by the fact they were losing people to the SDP. And the battle had to be fought over what was pretty well the most useless job and remains pretty well the most useless job in Labour politics, which is that of deputy leader. And it's worth noting that no deputy leader of the Labour Party has ever been elected leader since Michael Foote in 1980. But for Ben and for Healy and for everybody else, this was a kind of totemic fight for what would appear to be the future of the party. And Healy won it by a mere whisker of under 1%. John, is is that what you had in mind when you were running uh, Tony's campaign in 1981? Uh, well, by the time we got to the conference, um, you know, we thought we'd lost uh, because we knew we'd lost Newpy, uh, the Public Employees Union, which was, uh, you know, had 600,000 members, a lot of votes at the conference and in the Electoral College. Um, actually, I didn't know. We didn't know then. But the right also knew and for some reason never said. Um, and uh, so we thought we were going to lose. Actually, we lost by a very much smaller margin than we, you know, than we imagined. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's why I think the question of, uh, you know, what might have been is actually quite an intriguing one. And was, was deputy the limit of Tony Benn's ambitions during that period, John, or was, it, was that merely a staging post? Had he won, was the leadership in his sights? I think it's quite I think it's quite clear from looking at his diaries that, uh, you know, he really had the leadership in mind. It was... Uh, uh, you know, but that, you know, there wasn't a, lead, a leadership election in the offing. Uh, that, you know, and so, you know, he didn't really have that opportunity. Um, I mean, I think- um, but he thought he would. I mean, he, or he thought it was possible, at, you know, at, you know, it, it's, during the course of that campaign, it becomes increasingly obvious at the end that he, you know, that it, it, it wasn't going to happen. In fact, in, uh, you know, even in 1981, I think he's, he, he was seeing it slipping away. 
I think it's worth remembering, Patrick, the context of this, which is history now tells Margaret Thatcher as the greatest, most successful vote winner in Conservative Party history. But in 1981, she was an incredibly unpopular prime minister. I mean, it's worth remembering that you had three political parties with the SDB having been created, which was attracting all the polling. Mm. Uh, so is that polling should never necessarily always be trusted, even today. Um, Labour was seen as dividing itself in this civil war. But Margaret Thatcher, with unemployment reaching three million, was regarded as an incredibly unpopular prime minister. And what actually happened after 81, which I think is relevant to the question you just asked John about the leadership, is that the Falklands War in 1982 transformed Margaret Thatcher from, being, from what looked like a failed economic experiment with monetarism into a war leader. If Tony Benn had won the deputy leadership, then Michael Foote and Tony Benn, as the leaders of the Labour Party, would have been painted by the Conservatives as being unpatriotic, anti-the war, and it probably would have actually led to an even bigger Tory landslide in 83. So that's one fact. The other fact is, and I think the most intriguing one, is that Tony Benn himself lost his seat in 1983. And if he hadn't, and he challenged for the leadership and challenged Neil Kinnock, the real battle was not between left and right. It was between what we used to call the hard left, if John forgives the title, and the soft left, led by Neil Kinnock, who did not support Benn. And that battle in 1983 would have been the seismic battle which Neil Kinnock has always said, said to me in, in my book and said to me in private, he would have loved the challenge from Tony Benn on the left because he would have won it. But I think history is out as to how close that fight would have been. And if Benn had won the leadership of the Labour Party, the world would have been entirely different for Jeremy Corbyn, for the newly elected other MPs in 83 of Brown and Blair. And history in the 80s of the Labour Party would have been wholly different. So it was all there to fight for, even in 1981. Would you dis- would you dissent from any of that, John? Have we lost? John uh, well, I, I I I don't think I would I would wouldn't dissent from that. Um, I mean, in fact, I mean, Labour had been in the at the end of 1980. Labour was was you know had more than half the votes in the polls. Um, it was quite an incredible lead until the emergence of the SDP. Um, but I think the you know the the thing about Ben's importance was that you know he. You know, in a sense, looking back at that time now, we can see that that was the beginning of what we now now know as globalisation. Um, you know, actually, when Ben was uh, ministry of, minister of industry uh, in uh, the Wilson government and and, and energy, uh, you know, he he was postulating an, a, a, a strategy which uh, might have may and might not have. I mean, we don't know, but it was designed to take responsibility for investing in industry uh, in in order to deal with the devastating effects that have rolled out over the last 50 years of globalization. And, uh, you know, actually, you know, we used to make things in this country. You know, mo- many of the most of the things we use were manufactured here in Britain, just like was the case in Germany. But in Germany, they still make things. We don't. Uh, and that's because, not because Germany pursued a policy exactly like Tony was arguing, but because they had really strong regional government. Uh, they had joint working between unions, between regional banks and, uh, and, and industrial leaders that actually did the things 
that were being talked about in 1981 at the GLC and in other in the Met counties around the country, but nothing came of it because we weren't in government. Um, and you know, Germany showed that actually, you know, you can maintain a manufacturing industry uh, if you invest uh, in, a, in a collaborative way. Mm. Uh, you know that. For entirely ideological reasons, the British government, the, the Thatcher government, uh, you know, decided to have nothing whatsoever to do you know, with uh, with that kind of process uh, and, uh, you know, to let the markets rip. Well, uh, so, you know, John ben was the ideological opponent of Thatcher in many ways. There you go, a treat for political nerds. You heard from John Landsman, who ran Tony Benn's campaign, and David Cogan, who literally wrote the book on it. That's all we've got time for on today's Redbox podcast. Remember to like, subscribe, share and follow wherever you get yours from. I'll be back tomorrow. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.